You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you so much for joining us. Today we're joined by Elizabeth Weber, who is a commercial cellular therapy nurse coordinator, cellular therapy and transplant division at uh, Penn Medicine, Abraham Cancer Center in Philadelphia. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So I just heard you give a wonderful talk or part of a talk on CAR-T therapy and the role of coordinators. And so I want to ask you about one of your, the last thing you said, which is, I love my job. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. So I, my background was actually inpatient nursing. So I was an inpatient nurse for five years, which was a very different role than my current role. And I got started in this role and it was presented to me like we're going to figure out how to get patients through the system, patients that are going to get CAR-T, just trying to get them from start to finish. And not a lot had been laid out in the way of sort of what to do. So it's been a really amazing experience to be a part of it from kind of starting point to where we are now. My very first day in this role was actually when we did our dry run for one of the first commercial um, products. So I love that I get to spend as much time as a patient needs to kind of educate them. I like being their support person, being available to kind of bring down some of their anxiety levels surrounding this therapy um, because it can be a really stressful time. I also love having the ability to interface with all of the different disciplines, the physicians, the advanced practitioners, as well as the different manufacturers to sort of make sure that this process is seamless for patients. Let me ask you about even just the the time framework. So from when you did your dry run, which is really when your program was starting till now is how long? So that was in January of 2018. So so, so essentially a year and a, a half. Year. Yep. All right. And be, and I'm asking you this about your program more to reflect upon probably what's happening throughout the country. How far do you think you've come and how much further to go before you would say geez our our program or programs are so are streamlined and and uh, we're, we're we're doing what we want to be doing for patients. We have come so far. In the beginning it was I mean, pretty inefficient. (laughs) So we would take one patient and I would look at everything. I'd look at their chart. I'd look at their pathology. I'd really do a deep dive into looking at each of these patients and then look for sort of things that were would maybe be concerning moving forward with CAR-T. We kind of chiseled away and created certain criteria that were easier to look for requiring certain things on the front end before a provider asks for insurance authorization. So just as far as making things more efficient, we have come so far. We're nowhere near where I think we will be. Okay. Um, I think there, I think there's hopefully gonna be a little bit more automation as far as some of the data collection is concerned. And I think you know, just having more and more products available I think we will need to adapt in really different ways because not every therapy is going to have exactly the same side effect panel, things like that. Yeah. You and, and the group who presented at this symposium, you know, we're talking about the, the patient's journey. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I, I'd like to focus on that for, for a few minutes. 
and the anxiety and the need for support. And so, you know, in, in a, I can imagine the anxiety is high, but I'm going to ask you more about that. If we had an anxiety scale between zero and 10, just like we have a pain scale, what, sure. for most patients, what, what number is it? They're, I mean, they're coming in at a nine or a 10. Yeah, I think yeah. at this point they've failed multiple therapies. They may have, still have very aggressive disease and they come in very well informed as far as what they've read about. So they know about mm -hmm. these toxicities. They're concerned about these toxicities, but they also have this sort of sense that they, ha they need to do this. So really kind of empowering them to feel like this is a treatment decision that I'm making. This isn't sort of my last resort is one of the things that I, I really try to kind of help them process through after that first visit. So sort of sitting there after they meet with the physician and telling them to take a deep breath yes, and saying, yes. let's talk about what you just talked about and let's talk about how you're feeling kind of just teases a little bit away at some of that anxiety that they first come in with. But I think some patients, once they actually start the process, the anxiety goes down to maybe a, maybe a seven. Okay. Um, they feel like they're doing something that's actionable and they're, they're, they're making a move towards getting a treatment that may, may be really, really effective for them. So just getting further into the process, I do think some of the anxiety comes down, then sort of dips back up as they get closer to the actual infusion. Yeah, let me ask you about those conversations that you have with patients and, and, and your team in general. We in oncology, I'll include myself, don't use the word cure very often. Mm -hmm. and we also don't use the word death very often. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering, in patients undergoing CAR-T, do those, those words come up? Do those, those ideas, I might die or I might be cured? Do people talk about it? I think advertising has had a lot to do with that. So I think you know, this is something that's providing hope where maybe there wasn't necessarily that much hope before. So yes, patients do come in hoping that we're going to tell them this is going to cure you and in fact there's some patients who really will they'll they'll come at it in a couple different angles to really try to get you to say this will definitely cure me yeah. and what i really try to bring them back to is the fact that two years ago we couldn't have had these conversations about these options so there's never really a great time to have lymphoma but if there were probably would be 2019 because we have options so really being realistic about the fact that no it's not 100 percent of patients that are cured by this and that in in fact it doesn't work for some patients but you have oncologists that are so plugged in to what options are coming down the road what else is available what might make this work better and all the tricks that they may have up their sleeve really bringing them back to that to sort of take the onus off of them to say i need this for the cure yeah. so because it's I, I wish it was 100%. I wish it, yeah, and, and, and I, wish, I wish it was too. Let's talk about the flip side of it. Do patients say, you know, might I die from this? Or, I, might I, or, or I'm, I think I'm going to die of my disease. Or do people have that discussion or is that in a different uh, venue? So, so they will. And I don't always feel that I'm the most appropriate person to kind of have that conversation with them. But knowing that you know, that they have someone that will listen to them and maybe give them some resources. We're fortunate to live in an area that has a lot of different foundations, the LLS, there's many different foundations that can offer support to these patients. So sort of appropriately referring to them and also letting them know these are frank conversations you need to have with your providers um, yeah. because they know you best and, you know, I, I can't predict what the future will hold right. for you. Which, you know, which are honest answers, right. really, to, to, to very difficult questions. 
give an example, if you would, of, of a yeah. patient and a family you've worked with and sort of their their journey through this this portion of it, of sort of reaching your center and then going through the process of evaluation and then moving forward? Absolutely. That's one thing that I definitely think we've gotten better at as far as getting patients into the system. So mm-hmm. I can think of one situation in which it was an institution that wasn't quite set up to give CAR-T yet, but they were on their way. Mm-hmm. They, they referred the patient to Penn. Originally, they were told it would be a little while before they could get an appointment. Ultimately, the nurse navigator stepped in, reached out to me, and what was really nice is that I was able to collaborate with one of the nurse navigators at the institution Mm -hmm. to get these things set up on the front end. Another thing that I do really early on is reach out to the patients and tell them who I am and who I am not. Okay. I'm not a replacement for so, your care so, provider. So, well, so I want to ask you that. <laughs> yes. Who, who are you and who are you who, not? Who am I and who am I not? So I am, I, I introduced myself, I say I'm Lizzie. I am a nurse, but in this role, I'm serving as your logistical navigator. Okay. I'm going to take you through this process from start to finish, and I'm going to be your resource to make sure that, you know, financially that you have appropriate coverage, that clinically there's no, you know, we have seamless communication between your providers and ultimately getting you to the treatment. Who I am not is the person to call when you have a respiratory infection okay, yeah. or who, you know, because once once they have access to you, it is easier to call me than to call and leave a message for a call center and wait for a call yes, back. Yes. But really emphasizing to them that that's not the that's not this role and it really isn't the most effective way to report symptoms. So to continue to report to your primary team with any clinical concerns, clinical changes, or you know prescription refill needs, things like that. Okay. Actually, I was going to ask you about handoffs. I mean, are they handoffs or are you really you you sharing the ongoing care with the patient? Oftentimes, I, th- I feel that it is it is a shared responsibility. Yeah. So we'll update via email if they're in, in electronic medical records they can access our records we can access theirs we'll we'll talk on the phone but it's it oftentimes it seems like at other institutions they have sort of a coordinator that they have a re- established relationship with who will really help to expedite testing and things like that to make sure that um, because they want this patient to get the therapy too they're sure. very motivated to get them here yep yep so um, that would be you know kind of I guess what I what I am and what I'm not um, sure thank you mm-hmm. You know, something that at least a lot of us don't talk about very often is uh, insurance and, and the financial process. So one question is, how often are patients turned down where you just can't get it covered? I'm pretty persistent. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so, good, good. Um, I came, when I came into this role, I knew little to nothing about insurance. Okay. And I knew a little bit about CAR-T. Yeah, so yeah. what I've learned is that if you take the first answer you get... Mm-hmm you won't get the answer you need. So making sure that when you are reaching out to these payers, that you are providing them with the information that they need to make a decision that is best for the patient. Mm -hmm. So making sure that they understand that, no, I'm not asking for approval for a clinical trial. Yes, this is FDA approved. Yes, this is the pathology that shows that they meet this criteria. And really kind of giving them almost a a bulletproof package. I'll often send the FDA articles and really once you find someone within an insurance company mm-hmm. who right. who is familiar with this treatment, yeah. often I find it's transplant case managers holding on to them and keeping their number yeah, yeah. and and kind of making sure that that you can access them again. Oftentimes the first person that picks up the phone is not clear on what CAR T is. Is it chemo? Is it a transplant? Well, we don't do this. They don't approve that. They yes, don't do this. Yes. And it could take 
months <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if you really left it to that. So sort of really being deliberate and making choices about who you're speaking to. But I can confidently say we've been able to get all of our patients covered and it's such a relief for the patients to get that call. So, so essentially 100%. Yes. I mean, which is, which is amazing. And I have to say a, a, a surprise. Let me ask it a, a somewhat different way, which is, and maybe you haven't had this experience, but if an insurance company were to turn it down, would it typically be for a, a reasonable reason, such as they don't really fit the criteria for that treatment, which is FDA approved? I wouldn't say that we've had many scenarios in which it hasn't. it's been because they haven't met the criteria, because before we're submitting, we are making sure that it is pretty airtight, that yep. they that they do meet the criteria because we also, I mean, we're not trying to treat patients off label. So we want to make sure that they meet it too. So no, I I don't think that we've seen that scenario. We have seen scenarios where they will have certain requirements, maybe just mirrored off of allo transplant requirements or things like that, where they'll ask for certain workup that we don't require um, for CAR T, but usually just a kind of a conversation or a peer to peer Mm -hmm. to let them know this is why we don't do that. Or, you know, this is, what we'll do instead, you know, if requiring a colonoscopy for someone who, like, we need to prioritize their their cancer treatment right now. Exactly. So kind of just having that conversation with the insurance company is usually pretty successful. We have had situations where they'll have certain exclusionary criteria. Today at the conference, they mentioned excluding patients that had prior allo transplants. We have had success in, after a peer-to-peer, getting that approved. So sometimes I think it's just you know, CAR-T does not fit into a neat and tidy box. Um, and if you approach it as such, they'll give you no every time. <laughs> so yeah, kind of. Yeah. And, and I think your point was very well taken about it not being a clinical trial. Right. Which actually was very clarifying for me personally, because it really is an FDA approved therapy. Right. How often are you seeing patients who've sort of made it through the evaluation phase or felt to be candidates or actually you know, close to getting started on the process and then really progress and and never make it. That's a very hard thing, but we do see that. It's a very difficult conversation to have where a family member may feel like, well, they're progressing, just give it to them anyway. Like, let's try this. So I think we often see, we'll lay out a plan and say, we hope to infuse in four weeks. And week two, they get a new lymph node that pops up and they get imaging and they've really progressed. So what I try to tell patients and their families is it's more important that we do this at the right time than doing it quickly. So that there really is no value in trying to do this in a way that isn't safe for your family member. But there certainly are instances where they're collected, they have cells manufactured, and they unfortunately do not make it to infusion. Yeah. I want to ask you a sort of a series of questions on the nurse's role. Sure both within the, the as a nurse coordinator and also some about nursing care for these patients. So let me ask you first about preparing patients and their caregivers uh, uh, for all the logistical issues that come up, housing, um, medical care, everything they're going to face. Being very transparent about it because for some it may be, it may not be a real possibility to do it the standard way. So they may not have a person that can stay with them for 28 days. We may need to look for other options. We may need to consider administering inpatient. We've gone as far as for a patient that maybe didn't have a support system that was going to be able to stay with them, looking at some assisted livings that could maybe get some training on checking in on this patient and calling if necessary. We don't want the answer to just be no because you don't have 
this robust family support system. So being really transparent about why we require it, what is required, and what we can do to sort of help you meet that requirement. It is a tall ask to tell a family member, you are essentially being our eyes if we're doing Mm -hmm. this outpatient. So really giving them all of the information to feel empowered and not necessarily just anxious about the monitoring. Sure. How about, again, the nurse's role in assessment, monitoring for side effects, you know, including the very serious toxicities? Sure. Our nurses have been amazing. So when we kind of took on the training, the training actually started before I, I ever started, but our inpatient team, our outpatient team, have they have kind of taken on this role monitoring these patients and really really done amazingly well on the inpatient side they've implemented their own sort of processes to monitor these patients in a different way than they maybe would other patients so it's critical that they know what they're looking for because some of these side effects can be really subtle maybe it is just a little bit of a subtle difference in speech Mm -hmm. and sort of appropriately assessing for that and reporting it. On the other side is on the outpatient side, the triage nurses, when they receive these calls, knowing how to properly escalate them and escalate them quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if these patients require tocilizumab, we want them in and we want them in quickly. Right, right. And even probably preceding that, but again, nurses' role in terms of educating patients and families about what to expect in regards to toxicity. Right. So a lot of the education happens it happens at multiple time points. So it happens when they're consenting, when they're first deciding whether or not to embark on this journey. But as we get closer, a lot of the nurses in apheresis provide education about what to expect from that process. And then for infusion, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, they go through, this is what you can expect from the infusion. This is this is the timeline of what we may be able to expect after the infusion. So they hear it from me, they hear it from the APPs, they hear it from the MDs, but they really hear it and get it reiterated by the nurses. Yeah, which I, I have to believe contributes to patient safety. Absolutely. Having heard it many, many times. What have you seen in terms of family? What is this process like for family? What are they, as you're talking to the patient, as the other team members are, what's the family thinking about as they're sitting there in the room? I think it's terrifying. You're hearing about these toxicities and you're imagining the worst case scenario and your loved one losing control of their their mental status and not being able to speak and all of those things. So there is a lot of shifting, there's tears, there's the need for kind of giving them some time to process and coming back and talking about it again. Really, let's talk about your concerns. So I think Sometimes it almost seems like the family is more scared than the than, sure. the than the patient is, especially in patients that we've seen sort of in the throes of neurotoxicity. The patient sometimes doesn't seem so aware of it, but the family member is acutely aware of it, um, and this is not the person that I know. So sitting with them and letting them know that none of this is unexpected, this is what we, we expect to see, and that it does tend to be self-limiting is really valuable information to just kind of keep repeating to them and letting them know that they can reach out if they have questions or they just need to talk. And just a final question, who's on the team? I mean, it sounds like your team is really important. Who are the members? So it starts with the attending physician. We have a couple different scenarios. So Heather sees many of our CAR-T patients. That's one of the speakers today. And she sees them often from pre-lymphodepletion through infusion and follow-up. Sometimes the physicians will choose to have their own nurse practitioners kind of see these patients for the follow-up. Physicians, APPs, the triage nurses who are taking these calls, the financial coordinators that are helping to 
argue with insurance companies if necessary and really make sure everything happens. The, I do not want to forget anyone, <laughs> um, the um, interventional radiology for line placement, the physicians there often are so great about even just educating about that process. The apheresis physicians, nurses, Nutrition. Nutrition. Yes, nutrition. So unfortunately, we probably don't do as good as we should with, with, with kind of making those sorts of consults. But social work is often involved. Any other charades you got for me? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, the inpatient teams, yeah. the APPs. I think you got it. Think I, I got it? I think you got it. But, but it's, it's a village. It's a huge village. Yeah, yeah. it is. No, which, which is. Which is wonderful. This is Dr. Ken Miller, and I want to thank Elizabeth Weber, Lizzie, who is a nurse coordinator for Penn Medicine in Philadelphia. Lizzie, thanks so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Now we're being joined by Heather DiFilippo, who is a nurse practitioner at the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania in the bone marrow transplant and cellular therapy program, and also by Erin Madoff, who is a nurse practitioner in the leukemia service at Yale. Heather and Erin, thank you for joining us. Thank you Thank for you. inviting us. So it's a really nice opportunity to, we're talking as part of this series about um, very advanced therapies for really sick patients. And a lot of patients now are thankfully are cured of hematologic malignancies, but unfortunately many are not. And so, and how is the care of those patients, both of you have been doing this for a while, how's the care of these patients changed over time during your careers in terms of Who's delivering the care and what kind of care can be done as outpatient versus inpatient? My career kind of goes back more than 30 years. And I remember the days when patients were seen by their attending physician, residents and fellows and interns. And there were very, very few nurse practitioners back then, especially on the inpatient side. The house staff was physician-based and, and resident-based. and very much the opposite occurs now where a lot of units, both inpatient and uh, in clinics as well, is APP-based now. So we have the opportunity to get to know our patients very, very well and their families very well. We enjoy interacting with nurses and social workers and pharmacists and everyone else that is involved in the care of these patients. And it's very heartwarming to spend so much time with patients and staff and see evolutions in care, such as with CAR T-cell. Heather, along those lines, from a patient or a family's point of view, what are some of the things that are special about having it be advanced practice nursing based for a lot of these patients in their day-to-day care? It's continuity of care. Yeah. That is, the patients enjoy, are happy when they know they're being readmitted for chemotherapy and they're seeing the same faces. There are some rotations with the APPs, but they're seeing the same faces. If they have to be readmitted for a complication, we try to get them on the same service. And again, the, the continuity of care, I think, is tremendous. Yeah. Along those lines, let me ask you what, you know, if you look at your profession in nursing, the training is different and the orientation is different, but, but what are some of the things that actually, in a sense, make uh, advanced practice nurse perhaps uh, different in dealing with, with really sick patients than a strictly uh, MD-based team? Well, we, you know, we do bring both nursing to the role and medicine to the role, which I think is unique to our profession. Many AP nurse practitioners were nurses and went on to more advanced education. So we kind of 
bring both skill sets. And I think for APPs, we are the one continuity. It's not attending physicians who have to go off service to do something else two weeks after they meet patients. So, you know, we are their continuity. Yeah. What's, what is that process like for you in terms of, uh, I mean, I, it, it's a very general kind of question that I'm asking, but when you sort of look at your own satisfaction level and, and, and what do you, I'll ask both of you, but what, what do you like if you go, you go to work and you're happy and you're feeling excited, what, what are you excited about? Educating, educating patients, easing their mind, reassurance, feeling like you can put all the pieces of the puzzle together, ongoing education. It is true. I, you know, patients or family members must remember what 30% of what is said at an office visit. So you take that in consideration, just reiterating the education um, and getting to know them on a personal level. Um, I enjoy knowing them and their family and getting to know what they do and they enjoy going back and forth and talking about it, you asking about their family members, how have you been? That is what we were referring to as being a nurse. Like that's, I'm a nurse first and um, mm -hmm. I'm proud of that part of my role. Well, let me ask you, I, I mean, my, my own observation has been, or at least what I think, is that often patients will say more to the advanced practice nurse, the RN, the medical assistant, than they do to the doctor, mm -hmm. uh, they do to me. Have you noticed that and, and why? Oh, I think, um there, there's a number of reasons. Patients are worried, especially in hematology and for people who have advanced disease, they want to have treatment. So they're, they might be afraid that if they told their physician that they weren't feeling well, that maybe they wouldn't offer that transplant anymore. I think sometimes patients feel a little safer. And we frankly have a little bit more time than physicians yes. do to sit down and, and talk to patients and, and family members as well. So I want to focus on, again, caring for really sick patients. What do you see as your role as nurse practitioners in terms of preparing patients and families, both medically and also emotionally, for what's ahead? Well, in my role, I send patients to our CAR-T program where they're taken care of by the bone marrow transplant team. So the leukemia team kind of hands them off for as long as they need that kind of care. So um, getting patients to be accepting of that referral and a whole new set of, of caretakers is is a part of my role. And, and I'd like to have them know what they're going to experience because when they go for that first consult visit and they hear so much information, they're not going to remember more than 30% of it. So if they can get a little preview, I'd like to do that. What are those first couple meetings like? So you, you know, you're seeing someone who's, let's say, made it through the screening. Mm -hmm. And then they're they're sort of they're basically they've been accepted to the program. What what happens during the first couple, the first time you see them? Well, the first time I meet them is usually with the physician that I work with, and we give them an overview, um, with some hesitation, saying that let's do some testing, let's make sure this is the right therapy for you. And at that point, we order all the testing. But that is when you've heard from Lizzie Weber earlier. We refer the patient to Lizzie, and then who's she... Your, who's your coordinator? Who is the coordinator. 
and she will start the screening process and coordinating the time frame when it would be appropriate to be able to um, have the patient undergoing apheresis. So she starts coordinating everything. Yep. And she'll do um, a lot of education as well. And then the patient will come back to me after the cells have been collected and when they're ready for their lymphodepleting chemotherapy. But through that entire, I mean, it could be, let's say, two to four weeks. Mm -hmm. It is constant education, constant education. And patients don't seem to get tired of hearing that over and over again. I think it's reassuring. Um, it a question that I've never asked, but, I, but I'm thinking about as we're talking. I agree with you, I, but I, to some extent, people don't absorb a lot during the first session. I think 30% is generous. Uh. <laughs> I think it's actually lower than that. But after some, you know, as you're seeing patients and you're doing the education over and over again, is your sense that uh, patients and caregivers become pretty, pretty competent at this? They do. I do find that it's the family members who tend to be more nervous mm -hmm. than the actual patient, the majority I would say, because they feel the responsibility of monitoring the patient at home. And, you know, you sure you don't have a fever? How do you feel? They feel like they're actually um, bothering the actual patient, but they feel understandably a very strong responsibility to make sure, sure they're not sure. missing any symptoms to know when to call us. So I gotta, uh, I'll give you an example. I'm asking a patient, you know, how are you doing? And, and he or she says, oh, I'm just, I'm doing great. And you see the family in the background yeah. shaking their yeah. sh shaking okay. their head. Well, firstly, Eric, let me just ask you, how do you handle that? Um, well, I, I do a lot of teaching ahead of time and to tell people things like, if you get a temperature at two o'clock in the morning and you don't feel like getting out of bed, whoever's with them during that education session, if it's their wife or whatever, you have to make them, you know, call that right at that point. And it's not, I was under too many covers. I had a hat on my head. I took my hat off. I did best two out of three temperatures. None of that works. Uh -huh. And as a matter of fact, despite all that education, just this past week, one of my patients was home and had a temperature overnight the family knew about it and she said oh don't worry I'll just work through it and she didn't want to go to the hospital because her son had come from California mm -hmm. and she wanted to be home with him sure. so the next day she had another temperature and the husband finally called in the morning and said what should I do and I said you get yourselves right in here and fortunately she was in our clinic when all of a sudden she became hypotensive yeah. and septic and thankfully that happened while she was there because she probably never would have yeah. made it otherwise yeah so she was yeah she was at the right place at the at, at the right time focusing on CAR T what's a normal clinic day like for you and, and I'll tell you why I ask it because I'm, I'm still as a non CAR T doctor I don't have a sense for it. How many patients are, that you're seeing who've been through the process are doing well? How many are, are acutely ill, like the patient Erin just described? What are those day, your days like? Well, I have certain days carved out just to see the CAR T-cell patients. So about seven, I would say. Maybe I'm seeing seven on Monday where um, a couple of them are getting their infusions. Two are day seven and maybe one's day 14. So they're all within that 28-day period. And then typically I will follow them if they're not Dr. Porter's patient, if they're not, he's not the attending, after about three months they will go back to their 
their primary oncologist in the practice. Mm -hmm. But the typical day is educating on what's going on, um, assessing their symptoms, the physical exam, making sure they have the phone numbers. Oh, I lost my wallet card. Rewriting phone numbers, explaining blood counts, what a CRP and ferritin mean. Mm-hmm. Okay. Again, I want to get a perspective. Is it the majority of patients who, who again, let's say within the, the first 28 days are doing well or, or that most of them get admitted? Oh, sort of an overview. They're doing well. Yeah. There are, let's say, a handful. Not most people are admitted to the hospital. And if it is, it's been for you know, grade two CRS, so mild and seems... I feel that it's a very controlled environment because we're on seeing them so often, you know, three days a week when they get their cells, mm-hmm, weekly mm-hmm. up till day 28, and I'm available for them to come in any day of the week. Yeah, yeah. By the way, that's a, I mean, it's an interesting perspective, and I want to reflect back on, on leukemia and on aloe for a second. It's, it's nice to hear, again, a controlled environment, and it sounds like, again, people generally doing pretty well. Versus, Aaron, I know you've done uh, aloe transplant uh, over years. Is that is that the same, or is that a, sort of a different environment? Well, for both autologous and allogeneic transplant, we see our patients every day. And even when we transition our patients to CAR T, I think it's imp- I think it's important for the patients and families to kind of see our faces, even though they're being taken care of by another service. So I'll go see them either in the day hospital where we see our outpatients or, or inpatient, just so you can provide a little support from the past team and, and know what's going on when they come back to you at the end of their treatment. But yeah, it's a really sick group of patients we, we take care of. An allogeneic transplant, especially now that we have reduced intensity transplants for so many of our patients, they don't get sick right away mm-hmm. sometimes, and it's not until they get you know, graft-versus-host disease down the road that they might get sick or, or have an infection or they, their disease relapse. But yeah, it's, there's a lot of patients who come in sick with fevers and vomiting. That still is an issue that we have to deal with. I learned a long time ago when the nurse working with me, who I worked with for 20 years, said to me, Ken, this patient needs to be admitted. I knew to admit them. Uh, you know, I sort of learned learned early. But, but but so I'm going to ask a practical question, which is, what are your thresholds for getting on the phone and saying, you know, Mr. Jones needs to be admitted? Well, it really depends on the individual. Yep. To be honest, mm-hmm. their age, comorbidities, how responsible they are. If someone is having low-grade fevers that actually resolve on their own and they're not requiring any supportive care, any fluids, I keep an eye on them. I do not admit them. There's concern that temperature is steadily rising. Thinking about giving some fluid boluses, I get them into the hospital. Okay, so a lot of it at this point just just uh, eye- eyeballing and, and your gut feeling. Yeah, I have them come in typically yeah. and see me. Yeah. No matter because see, you know that's what I was saying when I was speaking earlier. Seeing the person is just so important. Absolutely. Let me ask both of you: uh, if the family were to see you in the hallway and pull you aside and say, "Aaron, Heather." you know, to have more of a confidential conversation, what what would they be asking you? Because I want to get a little a little window into what into the family's experience and then the patients. Well there's still the you know, if somebody's disease relapses and we've kind of exhausted all available therapies and we have to change to comfort and you know, the goals become different now. 
that often is uh, somebody pulling you aside in yeah. the hallway yeah. or depression. Patients don't want to admit that they're depressed and and family members will will let us know. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask, let me ask more about that. Is depression during and after this more common than we think it is? It's sort of a leading question, but... Oh, I, th- I think it is. And I used to think that, you know, obviously people have a right to be depressed and they should be depressed. And if a medication can help lift that a little bit, I, I say, why not? It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of people say, I don't want to take one more pill, yeah. but it's just one more pill when you have 10 and it may, may make a whole world of difference. And if it doesn't help or you don't like it, then you stop it. Heather, same, same question. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll say from the patient's point of view. The patient says, Heather, can I ask you a question that I haven't talked to anyone about? What were, or they, in other words, they want to have a more meaningful conversation. What are some of the things patients bring up to you? Am I going to die? Yeah, yeah. Um, is lymphoma incurable? Mm-hmm. Some questions that I thought may have been already answered or they would have known. I think mostly that or um, there we hear, I think, a lot of different things. My spouse isn't giving the full picture. Yeah. I feel that you need to listen to me. I'm the patient. Well. So, so let me ask you the, those two questions. And again, there's no there's no right answer. I think we all develop our own styles. But a, a patient says to you, Aaron, for example, am I going to die? How do you handle that? I usually say something really smart. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're all going to die one day and none of us have a crystal ball. What do you yeah. think? <laughs> I'm going to have to start using that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, I won't press you any further on that one. Okay. Or is lymphoma curable? Am I going to be cured? I mean, it's just that is such a challenging answer if you don't have a person in front of you and literally looking at their their history, right? This gentleman has had 20 years of lymphoma therapy and he's going through CAR T cell therapy and he said I didn't know that lymphoma is incurable I thought it was just going to be cured 20 years later and so I would say you know I we are all hoping and you're going through this therapy right now because we want you to be cured there's a chance that this will not work but thanks to scientists and physicians we are always looking at new therapies and I said let's just Let's just get through today. Heather, just as a last, I guess a last question, but as you think about the last 11 years of doing, doing CAR-T, is there, is there a patient and family that you most remember? And, and let me ask you why. Absolutely. He received his CLL and received um, CAR-T cell therapy on study, and it did not work. And we tried multiple other therapies, and his primary oncologist that referred to us pulled his physician aside and said, I'm gonna go talk to this patient about hospice. And the physician said, give me a couple more weeks, please. Don't approach him yet. And I have some other thoughts. And so we went a different direction and retreated him with um, CAR T cell therapy for CLL on trial. And that must have been five years ago. Wow. And he has had a wonderful quality of life and he's grateful and just the best feeling ever. Yeah. Um, so thank you. That, that's actually a really good story to, to, to end on. 
Anyways, I'd like to thank Heather to Filippo and Erin Madoff, who are advanced practice nurses. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having thank us. You. Thank, thank you. you. For a listing of our continuing education activities, including continuing education webinars and publications on CAR-T cell therapy, and all other healthcare professional resources, please visit www.lls.org forward slash CE. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.